Cappuccino with Constable Brian, uh, my guest today is a clinical psychologist, a writer, a speaker. She specialises in helping people overcome depression and anxiety. Uh, she's written several books including Will the Real Mr New Zealand Please Stand Up, uh, Sharing the Load, Depression Explained, Breast Support and the book which is currently at number five in the non-fiction chart she tells me, uh, The Book of Knowing. She's a breast cancer survivor and she's also a sufferer of bipolar disorder as well. My absolute pleasure and privilege to welcome Gwendolyn Smith to the show. Afternoon, Brian. Uh, so, I don't know if you've heard the podcast and as I always make the joke, if you haven't it's okay because it's only really my mum, my dad and my best mate who listen. So, what I do is I do a pop quiz hotshot round dedicated to one of my favourite police movies, Speed. Uh, I asked you some random... Is that with Keanu Reeves? It was, yeah. Right. And Dennis Hopper, more importantly. Okay. Yeah. Uh, so, uh, the last book you read was what? Apart from the Book of Knowing. Cause I know oh, the last book I read was The Colour of B. Larkham's Murder. Because hmm. I love murder mysteries. And this one was done, funny enough, from the point of view of a young lad who had a something called photosthenia or something it was a type of autism but instead of hearing sounds he would only hear things in, in colors and so he had witnessed a murder but the only way he could explain it to the police was through color and the and he had no face identification so the only way he could explain to the detectives who the people were in the room was to describe them by colour, which of course was incredibly confusing for anybody. Brilliant. I like the sounds of that. That sounds yeah, good. Yeah, it was a different read. Uh, when was your last aha moment? Aha. Gosh, these are tricky questions, Brian. Uh, they meant to break the ice, yeah. Uh, aha. Hmm. Oh, I know. I was at the dentist before you came to pick me up. And I'm concepting my next book, which is on overthinking. And I've been trying to think, you know, how do I explain the difference between positive and negative overthinking? And with the help of um, a bit of gas at the dentist, I got very creative and, and remembered the dark and the light side cartoons in Mad Magazine. There we go. Which, of course, is yin-yang, essentially. And I thought, well, that actually... I went, right, which could be an aha, uh -huh. and I went, that's it, the dark and the light side of overthinking. Beautiful, which also features in the Book of Knowing as well. Yeah, uh, it yeah, does, thank you, you. Dinner for five, who are your other four guests, yourself included, obviously? Uh, anybody from history. Oh, anybody from history. Yeah, or anybody that you know, or... Okay, um, Picasso, Frida Kahlo... Not that they get on. Um, Always makes for an interesting dinner. Yeah, yeah. I'm just trying to think. Kate Blanchett is another favourite of mine. Um, Man Ray and Salvador Dali. That is an eclectic table. It's fairly eclectic. Lovely, I like that. That's good. Yeah. Are you a passenger or a driver? A driver. Nice. What's your favourite, apart from your own, um, what's your favourite social media habits? Um, you mean, where do I cruise mm. around on social mm -hmm. media? Well, I tend to use social media more for marketing than networking, Brian. So, mm -hmm. like, for instance, with the book doing well, like getting that news about number five this afternoon. Now, you see, I'll put that up on my page because that encourages people to look and then it encourages shares. And so I think I misunderstood Facebook when it first came out. I thought it was more of a marketing tool than it is. It's not really a marketing tool. No. Um, but, yeah. What's your favourite quote? Um, it's an Oscar Wilde. Um, 
politicians have mastered the art of remaining below the level of misinterpretation. Like that? I do, I do. Yeah. <laughs> I don't know if I can agree with it as a police officer, but uh, you know, it's great. Yeah. Um, so, social anxiety is a condition characterised by an irrational fear of being negatively evaluated or judged by other people, correct? Yep. Right? Okay, so, and youth are currently, and these are all quotes from the Book of Knowing, are being, well, and also interviews you've done recently, are being swept up in an epidemic of anxiety and not depression. Yep. Yep. Okay, so. And as we both know, anxiety is a survival mechanism that gets switched on to deal with threats. It's that old fight or flight thing uh, that we all have. If we drop a lion into a car park, some of us will run and some of us will attempt to wrestle. But it's being switched on for the wrong reasons in today's youth. Why do you think that is? Well, I think that it is important to just start with a fundamental comment, Brian, and Mm -hmm. that's that... Um, approximately 37% of high trait anxiety is a genetic predisposition. Mm -hmm. Now these days you don't talk about is it nature or is it nurture because the more and more that we learn from the DNA and the more and more research the term now is epigenetics so it's genetics and the environment and how do those two work together? Mm-hmm. Not either or, that's the difference. So the first thing is, is that you've got this genetic predisposition and then you throw on top of that the, um, you know, the global and environmental forces. Mm-hmm. And even though it would be naive to say that Facebook and social media are responsible for this epidemic of anxiety because that's too reductionistic. You know, what is a factual thing to say is that these um, immediate gratification, everybody's life is transparent. The kid who feels like the anxious loser gets to click on to look at the A-team in their A-team clothes, at Mm. their A-team parties, with their A-team lives and all their A-team smiles. And so like the kids I work with, particularly with social phobia, um, you know, I, I almost feel like discouraging them from exposing themselves to that sort of fantasy land stuff all the time. But the catch-22, Brian, is that if they're not on it, then they're doubly a loser. Mm. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I hear you. And you said that anxiety is on the rise because too many people aren't resilient. Uh, too many uh, don't know how to adapt to a problem because if you've never had to solve a problem, how are you going to solve one? Yeah. Do you think it's in part due to, um, and here's some terms you may have heard of, I'm pretty sure you all have, safetyism from parents? You have helicopter parents, you have what we call normal appearance. Um, for instance, I had a friend of mine whose um, son was locked out of his house, uh, didn't have his mobile phone, sat on his doorstep for 40 minutes crying because he didn't know what to do. And then when he spoke to me about it, I said, did you think about going over to the next door neighbours and knocking on the door? Do you think it's just the fact that um, some of the youth aren't being coddled, but their mums and dads or whoever's looking after them are solving their problems for them and that's causing anxiety yep because you see that example Brian is that illustrates this complete inability to tolerate discomfort mm-hmm. locked out it's a problem then it's catastrophized then I can't stand it. You know, these are some of the sort of cognitive distortions that are in the book of knowing. Correct. I can't stand this. This is huge. Um, I'm never, so you get this black and white, all or nothing thinking. Um, I'm trapped. I'm powerless. And so that sort of behavior is certainly a part of these other phenomena that you've talked about. I mean, Helicopter parenting, which is one of the most commonly used terms, um, is this, you know, excessive 
overprotection. Mm-hmm. Now, it may be well-meaning. I mean, a lot of parents, um, you know, this behavior is well-meaning. But you see, the thing is with it is it teaches fear. It teaches not being able to cope. Mm. It teaches that the world is dangerous. Mm. And so when you look at the genetics, say you've got mum's a chronic warrior. Well, there's your genetic line, Mm -hmm. probably. But then also the kids growing up in a home with mum chronically worrying and observes the worry behavior as if it's an important growing up thing to do. Yeah, um, and like you said, you know, there's all these contributing factors. You have um, environment, you've got nurture, you have family, you've got social media, you have exposure to bullying and different psychological conditions that may be running in sort of, not the bloodline, but the family line as well. Uh-huh. Um, so with all those things going on, how do we build, or how do you build resiliency in a teen? Like I have friends of mine who say, you're not, they're not having a mobile phone until they turn 16, and then that way they, they get taught things. You know, they learn how to ask people for phone numbers and for directions and that type of stuff. And I have to say that was one of the reasons I love the Book of Knowing, because I turn to it, open it up, and it must be almost karma, and I know that you're not a big believer in all that type of stuff, but I got opened it up and went, Oh, look, it's the shit happens, reality happens, get on with it type thing. And I went, finally, somebody's talking a language that I mm. speak to kids very often. But how do you build resiliency in a teen that's maybe started heading down the anxiety track or is beginning to take on some of the traits of parents? What do you do? Well, we've got the real world and then we've got the ideal world, Brian. Mm. So. In my ideal world, um, you know, I would like to see, first of all, the Book of Knowing in libraries, but school libraries, but also, um, I mean, part of my dream is for it to sort of have, like, an educational module attached to it, because not every family can afford to take their kid to a private psychologist. Not every family, you know... And as we know, public mental health services are overloaded, and so they tend to do deal with the kid who's who's tried to kill themselves. You know, they they haven't got the resource to be putting on resiliency training workshops for subacutely um, anxious kids. Mm-hmm. So I therefore see it as preventative, and I also see it as an educational task. But upon saying that. Um, I get, you know, annoyed by the expectations on teachers where they've got to pick up everything from sex education to contraceptions to talking about AIDS to talking about this and and now they're expected because I um, work quite a lot at the Continuing Education Campus Mm -hmm. with teachers and guidance counsellors and they don't know what to do. No. And then I spoke to a bunch of correspondence school teachers the other day. 50% of correspondence school kids in this country are in correspondence school because they're anxious and the parents are keeping them home. Yeah. Um, And I heard you, when you were doing another interview, tell me, well, tell the listeners exactly that, which I always ask the cops when they come out, oh, I'm doing the podcast or something. And today I said, oh, I'm doing one with Gwendolyn. Oh, I showed them the book of knowing. And I went, okay, I've got a question for you. And I went, yeah. Are we becoming, and I mean we, the human race, are we becoming what we term in the business a bunch of snowflakes? Because there's a great little poster that sometimes pops its head up on the internet that says it's got the D-Day landing craft with a whole bunch of helmeted soldiers there and it says, on June 6, 1944, teenagers invaded Europe to stop a madman from taking over the world. But in today's world, for youth, words really hurt. I know that it's a really polar extreme, but do you think we are taking it too far with some of the? You know what I aspects? teach the young ones. Go on. Eventually, I mean, I've got to, I've got to establish um, a pretty good rapport before I get to this stage. I yep. mean, because I'm older than their parents, I'm, you know, they see me as sort of 
quite eccentric, maybe mm-hmm. like a granny. And then, you know, as I get to know them, I'll sort of swear a couple of times. They love that, you yep. know. And then, you know, part of what I say to them after I've been teaching about the I can't stand it's and all this sort of stuff, I'll just say to them, look, love, only sticks and stones can break your bones. Yeah. What yeah. other people are thinking is changes nothing, does nothing. But you see, they are so, particularly if there's an element of the social anxiety, the whole phobia, Brian, is that they're, they're freaked out by other pe- by what other people think. Yeah. And the only way they can gather that information is through mind reading, which is not a fact that they can do it. Which is one of the underlying themes in the Book of Knowing. Um, you know, obviously it's it's not reality, it's what you're thinking is yeah. reality, but yeah. it's not. So how did the Book of Knowing come about in your, I'm going to say your alter ego, um, Dr. No come about? Okay, well, a friend of mine, Lang Lee, who's a very well-known New Zealand poet, Lang had started her blog with sort of a lot of love poetry, you know, all the, and the young girls flocked to it like bees yep. to a honeypot, you know. As Billy Connolly would say, windswept and interesting. Yeah, yep. so Lang came around one night and she said, look, I'm starting to get all these posts from these girls who are cutting you know, something else you'll be familiar with. And she said, no, I don't know what to say. So I I sort of coached her in terms of remain neutral, don't get involved, you know, don't pass comment, because that's how you deal with self-harmers. And she said, yeah, well, she said, I think you should have a blog. So, cut a long story, I set up a blog called Ask Dr. No on Tumblr. It's spiked, is a common term. Hmm. Tumblr New York contacted me, said would I, you know, answer questions on air live for an hour. I got interviewed by The Guardian, which was a nice feather in the cap, and 11,000 letters in an hour. And exactly what was your reaction to that? I mean, was it a reaction of wow, or was it a reaction of holy shit, I've just opened a can that I might not be able to put, yeah. Because, you see, there's no way I could answer those. I mean, I do all this stuff, you know, for nothing in my spare time. Exactly and, I mean, so Tumblr took back, oh, it must have been about eight, eight and a half thousand of them, but about another 1,500 came in over the wall. And I would have spent months, Brian, mm. every spare minute I'm on there answering these letters. And so I thought, right, um best way to do this is to condense the information into a book but I tell you what I reckon I've probably sold 10 books through Tumblr and the reason being is if they've got 25 bucks do they want that book or do they want a phone card exactly yeah and that's the that's the problem with today's youth I guess yeah Um, do you ever worry about who you're talking to when you get some of those questions come through the site do you ever think whoa hang on this person I, I can do my best here but because it must take its toll on you, I mean, um, answering those types of questions from people that are in a really, I'm not going to say a bad spot, but they're in a kind of, almost like a black spot, I guess, and looking for help or light at the end of the tunnel, I guess. Well, I don't hashtag for self-harm. Yeah. Because, you know, there are people that answer self-harm things online um, in fact, there was one in that Guardian article that I did, but you know, you've got to watch that one. I mean, I remember I answered one question mm-hmm. with a self-harmer, and I put up because I always illustrate every post, and so I put up a bit of a picture. Whack! Within ten minutes, I had another post come through and say. You can't put up stuff like that. You'll trigger relapse. And I thought, well, fair enough. You know, so I Mm. took it off. Um, And if anyone comes through, and I probably get more of these than the self-harm, if anyone comes through that's, I want to be dead, I wish I was dead, um, etc., etc., then I don't even get into a conversation. I just say, 
you you know you need to be in contact with a health helpline in your region because you see these are all international brands so yeah. i wouldn't have a clue where no. they need to go exactly. you know yeah exactly right um and you've said before that you know social media and media are often labeled as being a, a cause of social anxiety by lots of people and i hear that very often as a police officer as well which you've said is far too simplistic it's puberty it's bullying it's a whole bunch of contributing factors like we said spoke about before what signs should you look out for if you're a parent though and a child where you think well hang on are they getting anxious about things i mean i've i've had um acquaintances of mine whose children have gone into a meeting for instance where uh, it's super super highly intelligent kids who are all being promoted as uh, leaders for something and they've had a panic attack and not been able to handle the entire situation again because they're, they're feeling anxious so what, what do you look for before you get to that stage um, in my opinion mm-hmm. I believe that parents know which of their children is hypersensitive mm-hmm. from birth because we're using the term anxiety um, and of course anxiety is is a clinical term for something that that we experience that comes from the fight flight response etc mm-hmm. however what we're really talking about is the um, the biology of temperament and I mean I use an example um, last night on the project which is you know parents will say when I had this child it was like I didn't even have a child Mm -hmm. never made a noise we could be out the back having a barbecue they'd sleep right through Mm -hmm. but when this child arrived it was like every noise was intolerable the separation anxiety was really difficult um, soothing them and pacifying them was a really big job now that's from birth yeah. so you can't go in there and say oh well, they must have been treated differently because you know I mean in your average family the kids are all getting you know brought up pretty much the same but if you've got this backdrop with the problems with the temperament with the hypersensitivity because that's what it is Brian mm-hmm. it is hypersensitivity and so when they get startled and that response is in the limbic system when they get startled they'll spike at say 90% arousal you know so mm-hmm. they'll spike up there the kid without the high trait anxiety get startled and might just go up to 60 units of discomfort and calm down five minutes later yeah as you and i both know because we're from an older generation failure is often part of life and often and uh, i think we'll both agree with us life's best lessons can be learned from when you lose something uh be it uh i don't know it could be a um a fight a parent or something like that um, how do you convey this message to the youth of today? I mean, there are lots of today's youth, you know, they lose something and they go st- start going into a downward spiral and then the next time they have a, a situation that's very similar, the anxiety starts building. Um, and such. So how do we teach our kids? Um, there's a famous saying that, I, and I do martial arts, that martial artists very often use, I never ever lose, but I always learn a lesson. Uh-huh. Um, how do we convey that to today's kids without being too preachy or moralistic about it well I guess going back to what we were talking about before is you sort of got to give them room to make mistakes haven't you mm-hmm. I mean if you you know sort of helicoptering around the place protecting them from every single thing that could possibly go wrong yeah then that that's when we've got this absence of resilience because of the overprotection so they're not exposed to anything that could cause discomfort um, what I do a lot of with the young ones um, is I decatastrophize. So in other th- words, what they've learned through a lot of popular culture, and I have 
tend to quote the Kardashians. <laughs> but, you know, you, you see, like, the tiniest thing. Oh, my God, oh, my God, oh, my God, oh, my God. How many times have you heard? Oh, my God. You know, and so they've yep. broken a fingernail and they're on the verge of a meltdown, yep. you know. And um, and as soon as the young ones come in and sit down, like, I can hear this, oh, my God, and I just couldn't stand it and this was just too much and then da-da-da. And so I use a, a naughty technique, which is called the terribleness scale. Right. And I put zero to a hundred up on the whiteboard and say I'm talking to them about um, oh, a boy that they met three days ago hasn't texted them back and this is I'm not good enough, um, what's the point, I can't cope and I say well okay so how bad is that hmm. on the scale of zero to a hundred? Oh, the way I'm feeling today, I don't know, 95, <laughs> yeah. you know. Yep. And so then I say, okay, now, just bear with me, but I just want you to imagine this. You go down the stairs after our session's finished, and you get a text from your dad, and your mother and sister have been involved in a head-on collision on the motorway and they're both on life support and intensive care. Where would you put that? Yeah, exactly. Um, oh, wow, okay, no, um, 150. I said no, no. It's got to be on the 0 to 100 scale. And so I said, she said, well, it's 100. And I said, look, they're both on life support. I said, so why don't we do your 99.9? Let's just, yeah, that'll be okay, that'll be okay. And then, of course, they're sitting there, and the not getting a phone call from someone that you met three days ago sits on 95% with mum and the sister on critical care is only 4.5 units away. Yep. And then I say, very confidently, <laughs> so where would that phone call be now? Oh, Five, yeah. yep. and that really liberates them, Brian, mm. Mm. because all because the question that I give them to carry around on a little flashcard is, how bad is this problem really? Yeah, and that's one of the things that you often say is reality is not the problem in the book of knowing. Yeah, and that shit happens. Um, and is that your the, the way that the the thinking your thinking basically has to alter? Um, and I love the fact that you've used um, so Socrates in there as well. I'm mm. an old classic student, so I love mm. it. I'm even going to throw in juveniles, bread and circuses in there somewhere yeah. at some stage during this interview. So is it a mindset shift uh, or is it a, I don't know, maybe like a, a Buddhist attitude of, yeah, well, that's just happened, but there's not much I can do with it, so I'm just going to carry on and make the best of a bad situation here that we need to adapt. It is a mind shift. Mm-hmm. Um, the cognitive science, because the book's based in sort of cognitive behavioural therapy. The cognitive science, like Aaron Beck, the founder, um, you know, often has is on the same panel as the Dalai Lama. Mm -hmm. You know, a lot of the sort of um, world-renowned cognitive theorists like David Burns, Jeffrey Young, Podesky, Judith Beck, you know, like all the mm -hmm. big names you'll often see the Dalai Lama's um, testimonials on the back of the book. Yep. And of course, mindfulness, which is the other big buzzword now. I mean, um, I think the links to meditation and Buddhism um, are very obvious. Mm. Yeah, and uh, when you look at somebody like Matthew Rickard uh, from France and all the research that he's done for Time magazine, like you say, it's quite obvious. But that the other side of that is, um, and I know that I think from what I've read, you're not a great believer in positive affirmations or um, stuff like The Secret, um, for instance. Uh, for me, that sets up people not to fail, um, but I don't put much faith in it because most of the time people think about themselves, like the phone call, for instance. Yeah, yeah. You know, um, and you don't get much focus on reality so to speak 
Um, I know that you've got some flashcards in the Book of Knowing, but I'd actually, I wouldn't say that they're positive affirmations. I'd say they're more like what we call memory jogs. Would that be fair? And also, back to Socrates, yep. they're questions. Correct, yep. They're not look into the mirror and smile and say, I'm a child of the universe. If you've, if you've got ruminative negative thought, e.g. worry, yep. one of the questions is, how is this thinking helping you? Mm-hmm. When you use how, what, when, where, you encourage the brain to search. And so, you know, so you're going, so there you are, negative, 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 over, over, over. And you say to your brain, which we can do because we think about our thinking, okay, so, and how's this thinking helping you? Mm. Um, actually, it's not. Okay, well, how about you distract and do something else? Because what I point out to clients is if you say, don't do that or don't think this or you should be smiling, you should be, you know, one with nature. It's about as pointless as saying, Brian, when I'm talking to you, I don't want you to think about camels. I don't want you to imagine camels. I don't want you to see camels on cushion covers, National Geographic covers. I really just want you to concentrate on what I'm saying. So you can see how futile that That is. is. Yeah, Yeah, exactly. Do you think part of the problem is that we are all, and I say that because I think we all are, a bit more self-centered than maybe the generations before us uh, these days? We tend to think more about ourselves um, detached from others and we're quite sort of insular with our feelings we're not maybe as repressed as some of maybe people from the 30s and the 40s were but I don't think we're quite as sort of I don't know liberal, liberal, um, liberally minded as sort of the 60s and 70s types people we've sort of again not because of social media but just because of uh, like you say, the A-team kids have got the best clothes and the best cars and everything else. And we all seem to have this thing of, actually, there's nothing, um, this sort of thing of, I want to be a CEO and I want to be this and I want to be that. And you, do, you very rarely, I very rarely hear kids actually say, you know what, I want to be a plumber when I grow up. And that would be the sensible thing to do. Have you paid for a plumber recently? Well, yeah, exactly. But yeah. Sparky, just, well, exactly, Sparky. You know, and there just seems to be this thing of, if I do something like that, then that's sort of a mediocre a life. Um, and like you say in the Book of Knowing, not everybody can change the world. And um, not everybody can do something that's extraordinary, but you can actually accept your life and sort of get on with it. Do you think that's part of the problem, is the fact that we've become so self-centred and so driven? And, you know, you get parents who, if their child says, actually, you know what, I want to be... Um, a supermarket manager not that there's anything wrong with that in any way shape or form the parents sort of go well we actually had plans for you to be you know in the Forbes 500 CEO yeah, list. Yeah. I mean I really like the Roosevelt quote that I've put in that section mm-hmm. with the stuff you're talking yep. about which is comparison is the thief of joy yeah and I I'll often make that up into little flashcards for some of the any client of any age actually that I see that really torture themselves by constantly comparing themselves Mm -hmm. to what other people have got and what they haven't got. Um, In terms of, you know, generational comment, and of course you and I are talking about the first world. Yeah, we are. We're not talking about all of the other terrible, terrible stuff that goes on. You know, we're talking about the privileged of the first world um, you know since the second world war there has not been another major world war like that and you see the baby boomers have had incredible affluence Um, there's all there was always jobs there was free education you know and the and the parents that the mothers that were giving birth from 49 onwards I mean these were women and their husbands that had struggled through a depression and being bombed and you know mm-hmm. incredible hardship that us jelly tips have never had anything to do with you know yeah. and so then you come down and then of course you start to see the firstborns of the baby boomers mm-hmm. and of course the baby boomers were really 
and and there was a missing generation apparently but but then I think the Gen Ys came in there they were very very pushed there was a lot of performance and perfectionistic anxiety in that in the thir that 30 something group when I first started seeing them and that was definitely the push from the dual career baby boomer family yeah. you know push 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 then the Gen Ys came through and they was and these were the youngest children of the baby boomers and so they often really grew up on a lot of guilt money mum mm -hmm. and dad dual careers um, yeah. they you know they put all their energy into the first couple of kids and so oh god look I've got a Supreme Court hearing scheduled for tomorrow look here's a hundred bucks you know, so the Gen Ys then got this reputation for being entitled, lazy and demanding yeah. and not wanting to start at the bottom of the ladder. Yeah. Um, and then, you know, this crowd at the moment, um, I guess we're calling, still calling these the millennials, I guess the, um, my biggest exposure to them is this, um, anxiety epidemic mm -hmm. I'm not saying it hasn't been there before Brian but that just seems to be the flavour but then I've got a biased opinion you see mm. I'm a clinician Exactly. I don't see the kids that are happy no exactly well yeah but I mean I know personally and I go around to the schools and I see the kids and I do work in the community as well there seems to be not an epidemic but there seems to be certainly a lot more anxiety yeah. in this generation than I've seen and I've been in the police 23 years say 20 years ago for mm. instance um, a lot of this is about dealing in rational fact which is something that police officers do all the time not opinion not rumor uh, or the what-ifs why as humans do we do that why do we do that what if or opinions or rumors you know oh, I've just heard that Gwendolyn Smith's got the number five book on the thing and apparently there's it's a part of a trilogy because I was talking to mrs. Brown down the road why do we get so wrapped up in rumor and hearsay and that type of thing is it because it's more interesting than reality I think that that sort of stuff can be a currency mm -hmm. you know like you notice if, if there is a crisis somewhere you do get the group that are clearly ambulance chasers yeah you know and they're on that phone and they're popping in mm -hmm. is everything okay Yep. And, and it, it, it's got a real Coro Street flavour in a way, yeah, hasn't yeah, it? it? But is. that's not to say there isn't genuine concern. Um, but I think that, that people trade on being in the know as a bit of a currency to give themselves a position yeah. in the community. And when you get the... When you understand how you think, you get the chance to how... We get the chance to sort of feel how you feel. Um, you're a breast cancer survivor mm -hmm. and you like you've told me and I've read that you're also um, a bipolar sufferer as well mm -hmm. how did it work talk for you? about two short straws eh Brian well hey look <laughs> uh, yeah, it's, yeah it's, as we often say in the business it's a shit sandwich but it's my shit sandwich and I've got to make the best yeah, of it yeah. so how did it how did it work for you when you unlocked it for yourself and made, thought Actually, you know, how if I control how I think, then I'm going to control how I feel. Like I read, when you got your diagnosis of breast cancer, you you know you were very not blasé about it, but you were like, well, I'm going to have to listen to the specialist, and I'm going to have to do this, this, and yeah, this. Yeah, yeah. I had a leukemia scare a wee while ago, and um, I I remember turning around to the specialist and saying, well, I hope I don't lose any hair as I do the treatment, um, and he sort of went, wow, and I said, well, look, there's nothing I can do with it because it's reality it's there in the face I have to take your advice and do the best I can do for myself now yeah yeah but how did you deal with it for yourself because I mean that like you say that's both ends of the straw it really is isn't it yeah I mean there was a bit of a double banger back then Brian because you see the thing was was that I was just getting another getting over another manic depressive episode so when I got the news I was in the middle of a severe clinical depression. Mm -hmm. So I was in bed all the time, and I got this phone call from Breast Screen ATRO, and they said, oh, Gwendolyn, you know, there's, there's some abnormalities. 
you know, with your mammogram, would you mind coming in? I said, oh, yeah, okay. Um, what have you got the week after next? And quite shocked, she said, the week after next? We've actually got spots tomorrow. Mm. And, you know, most people cancer, they'd be in there. And I said, no, no, the week after next, because I then knew that my antidepressants would have started to work. Yeah. Because I wasn't going to be able to get out of bed and drive the car to get over there to get the news. Mm. You know, so... Um, but, you know, I guess the thing is, I didn't research anything. I didn't look up Dr. Google. No. Um, because I don't want to know. Yeah. I don't want to look at worst case scenarios. I had a fabulous surgeon, and the only person I was interested in talking to was him. Yeah. You know, and... Um, yeah, I I mean, in reflection, I guess it was sort of, you know, being aware of how I was thinking in terms of, okay, now, if I do, if I look up Google and look at a whole lot of in situ, you know, carcinogenic stuff, mm-hmm. I'm going to freak myself out. Yeah. So, I mean, I even had, Brian, I'm sure your colleagues are like this, I even had a farewell to my tits party. Well, I had, yeah, I, I, re- I read a little read bit. That? I read a little bit of the yeah. other book. I hadn't managed to get the yeah. whole way through it. But the thing that staggered me, and I'm guessing it's a true story, is the fact that your medical insurance would cover one breast but oh. wouldn't cover the other. Is that correct? Yeah, yeah, yeah. That did my head in. Yeah, that's yeah. That I thought was very interesting, but that's a tale for another day, I guess. Yeah. Is medication just the just medication the answer? Because a lot of people I know, again, who suffer anxiety, they'll get anxious about a moment that's coming up or they've got a test to sit or something else and they're like, oh, if I have a couple of these tablets or I have a couple of my medication tablets, it levels me out and I'm, I'm good, I don't get so anxious and everything else. Is that the answer or is that just sort of disguising the fact, in your opinion? In psychiatry, we use medication in all different shapes and forms and mm. since the big mother's little helpers, yep. half the first world suburban neurotic housewives addicted to Valium, you know, the plug really had to be pulled back on Valley of the Dolls, yep. you know. And now the benzos are used short-term trauma, yep. a family member dies, you know, so very short-term, so you're not talking about an addictive process being started. People with a fear of flying phobia, you've got a very specific phobia, they just want to get on the plane and they want to go to sleep and get off the plane. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, they could do a big course on fear of flying phobias. Um, or they could just get on the plane and take it to Mazapan. I mean, wh- you know, when I work with people with fear of flying phobias, it is the combination of both. Mm-hmm. Um, and I also do flashcards you know, that clients of mine take on the plane with them, you know, and do a bit of breathing and so on. Um, So, and for for the occasional bit of performance anxiety, what's the harm in a sleeping pool the night before the exam? But, Mm. when someone is living with anxiety all day and every day, their sleep's disturbed, They've got irritable bowel, they're developing gastrointestinal problems, they've got migraines and psoriasis. You know, let's be serious. You yep. know, that that's when it's the both and. Because if people come and see me, Brian, and they're seriously clinically depressed, I get them to see a psychiatrist and get some medication on board because they're certainly not going to be able to concentrate on what I'm saying. Mm. And you spoke about it being really, really prevalent, and, and I say this being involved in the entertainment industry through the kids TV program I'm involved in but the entertainment industry and you used recently during an interview Barbara Streisand's sort of you know wonderful yeah. analogy of everything can be going on and and the show's still got to go on and as long as the performance is perfect nobody yeah. really cares as the late great Freddie Mercury said the show must go on yeah um yeah. why do you think it's so prevalent in that industry is it just that thing of uh I need to be Appreciated. I need to feel loved, and I need to hear that my performance is good. Um, I've got a couple of theories. Go on. I think that what would be agreed is that 
It's like was my illness, bipolar. Mm-hmm. Not everybody was bipolar. Is, you know, is a genius or Spike Milligan or John no, exactly. Cleese yep. or whatever. But if you look at a hundred people with bipolar, you've got a bigger percentage than the normal population mm-hmm. of, of high creativity. Mm-hmm. So let's span that out to anxiety. So don't forget that um, like Johnny Depp or Barbara Streisand, I mean, they would have been highly creative, anxious kids. Mm-hmm. Once it morphed into um, social anxiety or social phobia, you then you then see the development of two separate personas. You see the performer, mm-hmm. and when the individual is performing, you're looking at the guitar, you're hearing the voice, you're looking at the microphone, you're looking at, you know, if it's Johnny Depp, you're looking at the guy from the Chocolate Factory, or you're looking at the guy character from Blow. So what's being evaluated is the performance, not the individual. Prince was the same. Yeah. Because, um, I mean, Prince had a bloody shit load of drugs on board, you know. Yep. And, you know, when you talk to people in the industry, he was a obscenely negative perfectionist. Mm-hmm. He was just on the go, on the go, on the go. And a couple of things I read said that he was undoubtedly socially phobic. But you see, I all, you know, people bang on about whether or not Michael Jackson was a pedophile. I don't know whether he was a pedophile, but he was a highly anxious mm. individual who... Um, could really only relate emotionally to children. Mm. And they asked, and just to prove to you that not all police officers are squares, mm. uh, they asked Alice Cooper, for instance, why he thought he had survived so long mm. in the show business industry. And he said, because a long time ago I figured out that the Alice Cooper that you see on stage is a part I play. I play the part, I take the makeup off, and I'm just that guy walking down the street. Yeah, yeah. Um, whereas the others, he said, they don't get to take the makeup off, they don't get to put the hair in a ponytail or yeah, yeah. have it short. And he said, they have to play that part 24-7. And he said, eventually, with that pressure and all those things going on, of course it's going to make you go get anxious about things. So I don't think police officers are square. But oh, there you go. Fantastic. Mm. So what did you hope to achieve when you wrote the book of knowing because you've written some other books as well but I mean this is the one that I mean it's it's been there in your blog um, it's and I don't mean this in any way as an insult it's quite simplistic and it's it's got some very detailed concepts but the way that you've done it is brilliant because I know that I could give it to a year 10 student for instance how old are they the they, year we're 10s. talking uh, fifth four form four formers fifth formers as you and yeah. I would know them all the way up to um, I've given. I've actually just given it to a mate of mine who's sort of in his early fifties and said, "Here, check yeah, this out." Yeah, yeah. Uh, he said, "Oh, great! It's a fantastic read as well." What did you hope to achieve with it? Did you just hope to sort of unlock uh, people so that they could go, "Okay, you yeah, know, I understand why this is going on, or this is what I'm doing." That's not actually rational thought. Um, it's not thinking. What What was your goal? Well. You know, I've actually achieved the bulk of them. It's accessible. It's funny. Yep. It's full of science. And in the first sort of self-published edition, um, I just saw people in my office loving it mm. and get really getting benefit. They said it's like having therapy with you, Gwendolyn, and hmm. a lot cheaper, obviously. So, <laughs> um, you know, so, and I know that once people find out about it and read it, it is going to help a lot of people, you know, so I'm really happy about that. But like I said, um, so the more people the better, but like I said, I'd really like to see it um, picked up by the education system. Yep. Uh, Can we expect to see a sequel to it, do you think? I know that you've told me that you're thinking when you're under the dentist in the dentist chair under the under the gas you're talking about uh another book uh on maybe overthinking which again would be fantastic as well because that's something we all do 
but um, do you think there'll be another sequel to the Book of Knowing, maybe? Overthinking will be like a sequel, Brian. Fantastic. Because it'll still be in the same model, yep. you know, the same science, but the um, the age, I'll, I'll be lifting the age a little bit. It's not going to exclude youth because it'll still be all my books, whether they're on cancer or depression, all have a reading age of 12. Mm-hmm. Um, just in case I ever get into the American market, there's my rationale for that one. Hey, look, True I'm saying story. nothing about it. Yeah, yeah. exactly, yep. Um, and so it'll be a slightly older target, but with the same simplicity, um, the same humour, lots of pictures. Grown-ups love lots of pictures. Yeah, it's strange, that, isn't it? It's like the colouring yeah. books that came out a couple of years yeah. ago for therapy. Yeah. Um, so now you've already said your words exactly was that you had a goodbye to your tits party. So the question I always end the cappuccino on is this: Your day of reckoning has come, and you are lucky enough to actually be able to hear what people are saying about Gwendolyn Smith mm-hmm. in your eulogy. What would you hope that people will say about Gwendolyn Smith? I can't believe she got away with it. And there's nothing wrong with that. <laughs> there really is nothing wrong with that. That's great. And so concludes another cappuccino with Constable Brian. Uh, until the next brew, stay safe and take the time every now and then to stop and smell the coffee. It has been my great privilege to have Gwendolyn Smith here with us, the author of The Book of Knowing. And thanks to Alan and Unwin, we actually have a copy of that book, which I'll get Gwendolyn to sign for us. Uh, you can get some entries on that on the... Uh, Brian and Bobby Facebook page and I'll put up some details of that again. So thank you very much again for your time Gwendolyn because I know you've just come from the dentist um, so I really appreciate it. Well thanks for not mentioning the drooling. <laughs> well I didn't know like, <laughs> the least I could do. As one professional to another it's the best I could do so we'll no. catch you next time. Thank you Brian.